we're just going through the book of Acts innocently, and we come to chapter 19, and we come to a text tonight that, depending on who we're talking to or uh, about, this is a very controversial passage of Scripture. And so, uh, I kind of am glad that this fell on a night like this, because you can't get mad at me tonight, because you just had communion, amen? So you've got to stay right, and uh, we'll go forward, but I hope we can come at this from Scripture But you might have read this, in fact, I'll be honest with you, I've read this text and been bothered by it many times myself, and uh, as I got into it and studied a little more, I think that uh, we have a good handle on how the Lord wants us to look at this, but a very possibly confusing subject matter this evening, so uh, hopefully we can see what the Lord wants us to see out of it. One of the mistakes that Pentecostals make and other groups make in Bible interpretation is that they take a segment of Scripture and they create a whole doctrine out of just a couple of verses. In fact, they ignore the host of teaching in the rest of the Bible concerning a certain topic, and they will cherry-pick a passage and then kind of build a doctrine around that. I'll give you an example. Uh, For instance, the Philippian jailer accepted Christ. The Bible says he was baptized. House, he was baptized and his house, and then many people pull from that baby baptism because his whole house got baptized. Does not mean just because he had a family that there was babies in there. I mean, it just doesn't mean that how many families in our church and some people have babies, some don't, but that does not mean that uh, there's baby baptism is uh, promoted in that verse. Uh, but I want to look at this peculiar passage tonight and I want to. Note several things about this passage as we, before we read it. And so as we read, I want you to remember three things about this passage. It is singular. There's no other example like this in Scripture, exactly like this. It is strange in that we are not instructed to do this anywhere, what Paul did in this passage. And it's specific. It is, uh, there are specific people involved here that make a difference. I don't know if you caught what I just did, but Pastor Forsberg should be proud of me. I alliterated that. Singular, strange, and specific. It's hard for me to come up with those. He's, he's a natural at it. So, yes, that's good. Take it down. He, uh, I got a glimpse of his grocery list one time. It was all alliterated. I don't know how he does that. but uh, Acts 19, let's read verse number 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, That is, on Jesus Christ. Important there, the distinction. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. They spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. Father, I pray you'd help me now tonight. Uh, Be clear. I hope, Lord, that I present this uh, completely biblically. That's what we want to do. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. When Paul arrived at Ephesus, he met a dozen men claiming Christianity. Paul talked with them to find out their understanding of the gospel. Like Apollos, they only knew the baptism of John. 
They had never even heard, they said, of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of strange because, you know, John the Baptist preached the Holy Spirit. In fact, he said in Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, Paul asks a question that is often quoted out of context by those who hold a mistaken view of the Spirit. He says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? Their answer, we have not, uh, well, I'll read it exactly, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Uh, basically meant here, we don't, uh, we've not heard that the Holy Ghost was given yet, or we've never heard of the Holy Ghost. Now, this leads to a popular but false teaching that believers must ask God to give them the Holy Spirit sometime after salvation. That the Holy Spirit comes on a Christian some, at some point down the road after they've been saved. The gifts of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is one of the benefits that is given to the believer at the very moment of salvation. May I read you a verse, Romans 8, 9, is very clear on this subject. Romans 8, 9, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. In other words, the Bible says there, either you have the Holy Spirit and you are saved, or you do not have the Holy Spirit and you are not saved. You're not of His. And so, it gives no allowance for this salvation before the Spirit comes. Now, it's wrong for us to ask God to give us something He's already given us. The baptism of the Spirit and the gift of the Spirit are interrelated. The baptism of the Spirit puts me in Christ. The gift of the Spirit puts Christ in me, or the, or Christ, you know, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. One makes me a member of His mystical body. The other makes me my material body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Romans or First Corinthians chapter six. It's equally wrong then to ask God for more of His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can't receive a person by installments. He comes and he is within, dwells within us at the moment of salvation. So when you accepted Christ as Savior, God gave you the gift of his Holy Spirit. You received that marvelous person in your life. Uh, again, Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. The Christian life then is a process. We learn more and more about the love and the power of, of the one who indwells us or indwells those that trust Christ as Savior. Now, these dozen uh, Ephesian converts here, they knew nothing, converts of John, I should say, knew nothing about the gift of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about His indwelling, His sealing ministry, about how He is the earnest of our inheritance. So these men were believers in Christ to the best of their knowledge, but I do not believe they were yet Christians. So we see the conversion here in verse 5. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. At this point, I love this, Paul did not continue in his discussion of the Holy Spirit. Many people today have an unscriptural, I believe, instruction on the so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit they'll have some charismatic experience. Uh, that, and they're never genuinely saved at all, but they have some religious experience. So they, because they're not saved, if they're not, they never have a genuine encounter with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we should do with them, as Paul did with these people here, he immediately pointed them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand, if you will, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is always in Scripture, never to point to himself, but always to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he is here. Uh, he is supremely exists to point people to Jesus. That is the danger in any denomination that puts more focus on the Holy Spirit than they do on the Lord and the Lord Jesus. I've seen, I don't usually linger long on television programs, but uh, have you ever seen a Pentecostal television program? It's spirit, 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 spirit. That's all they talk about. And now the Holy Spirit's important. We don't minimize him. But the Holy Spirit never existed to call attention to himself. He's always pointing people to Christ. John 15, 26, Jesus talks about that. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from my Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, then he says what he's going to do. He shall testify of me. Not of himself, of me. Paul directed the attention of these men to Jesus. They knew Jesus, but they only knew Jesus as preached by John. And they did obey the light that they had. Uh, they had been baptized by John. And now as God gives them more light, immediately they responded to that. In talking with them, Paul realized that their knowledge of Christ was deficient. Now, if you were here during our Wednesday night John the Baptist uh, study, you uh, may remember, if not, I can give you uh, some, some notes on this if you're interested. But we went into pretty detail on the difference between John's baptism. Remember, there's three different baptisms. There's John's baptism of repentance, the baptism of the redeemer, the baptism of repentance, redeemer, and the redeemed. Hey, look at that. We alliterated again. The three baptisms. Repentance, that's the John's baptism, and then the redeemer, that's Jesus' baptism, and then the redeemed, that's ours. Uh, let me just give you a couple of differences here. John's baptism pointed forward to one who was coming. G Christian baptism points back to one who has come. John's baptism was linked to repentance. In other words, you said, I am repentant, so I'll submit to baptism as a public expression of my personal expectation of the coming Christ. Uh, while John's baptism was linked to repentance, Christian baptism is linked to regeneration. I have been regenerated, born again. So I'll submit to this baptism as a public expression of my personal experience of an indwelling Christ. John's baptism pointed to a promised baptism of the Spirit which predicted the day of Pentecost. Christian baptism uh, points to a present baptism of the Spirit which is proclaimed at the day of Pentecost. John's baptism says there will be a change in dispensations. The Holy Spirit is coming into the world. Christian baptism says there's a change in my disposition. The Holy Spirit has come into my heart. They're different. These are different things that Paul was presenting with what these men. Now, John's baptism was essentially Jewish in its character and its significance. Uh, believer's baptism is essentially Christian in its character and significance. A Jew baptized by John remained a Jew. Now, a Jew baptized as a Christian or in believer's baptism uh, is still uh, a Jew, but he is now identifying as a Christian. Uh, it does not put him into the church. It announces that he is in the church. Another reason, by the way, why we baptize into membership. It is a church, uh, it is a church ordinance. And so, 
as you, uh, as, as we explain clearly in the baptismal tank, when we are baptized, uh, water immersion baptized, we are baptized proclaiming, uh, it's a public expression of an inward decision. So the answer of these 12 men revealed to Paul just where they stood in relation to Christ. Paul explained the whole gospel of Christ to them, and you know what they did? They believed at once, and they followed the Lord in believer's baptism. Very, very important. Now let's go to verse number 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about 12. There can be no doubt that this is an unusual incident here, even for apostolic times. So how are we to view this particular incident that we read here? It only involved 12 Jews, disciples of John the Baptist, that came into a fuller understanding of the gospel. They embraced it, but the Holy Spirit, or then the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues. The event is, it is, as I said in the beginning, it is singular and it is unusual. We do not use it as a basis for doctrine. You do not take a single scripture or a single verse and build a whole doctrine around it, especially not if there is much written in the rest of the Bible concerning these things. And, and this, I'm, I'm making, stressing this because people pull tongues out of this. They, they, uh, they, they misrepresent what tongues were, the time frame that tongues existed, and they make them for what, what, they, what it wasn't for by applying it today. And we'll look at that in a moment here. But let's, uh, let's try to get an understanding. Why is this here? If this isn't meant for us to practice in the church, why is it written here? First of all, understand these men were Jews. Tongues was a Jewish sign. Everywhere in the Bible that you find the gift of tongues mentioned in Acts, Jews are a part of it. This is understandable because tongues was a, essentially a sign to the Jews. Now, if we look at uh, why Luke wrote this, and I think it'll help us to understand to the setting, you always want, in your Bible study, you always want to read, uh, as you write, who wrote it, who it was written to, and who it's written about, and, and you get understanding. Uh, that doesn't mean that we ignore parts of the Bible. We also understand certain parts of the Bible are for different groups of people. Luke had an apparent reason for writing. He was primarily tracing the course of Christianity from its earliest uh, beginnings in Jerusalem. That's, his, that's, the, that's the main reason. He also had an apologetic reason. He wanted to confront the charge that was raised by Jewish officials that Christianity was an illegal religion. Over and over in the book of Acts, it shows, uh, he shows how Christianity goes on trial. Uh, before both Jewish and Roman officials. And always the Roman authorities, we looked at one just last week, would clear uh, the Christians, uh, the trumped up charges that were brought up against them. And uh, some even claim that Luke intended the book of Acts to be a legal brief for Paul to use when he went before Caesar. Don't know if that's true or not, but uh, this is one of the reasons he wrote. He was... He was legitimizing Christianity. He also had an apostolic reason for writing the book of Acts. Luke's hero was Paul. And as you study the book of Acts, you'll come up with something really interesting. You know, Paul was not one of the original 12, but he was an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15.8 says he was born out of due time. He had once brutally opposed the church. 
He persecuted them viciously. He hated Christ. Now, of course, he had many distractors in the Jewish community. Uh, Many unsaved Jews hated him with as much passion as he once hated Christians himself. Even in the Jewish community, the Christian community, I should say, there were many that were suspicious of Paul. You can imagine that because of who he was at one time. Sometimes it's hard for people to look past that, even in our churches today. Uh, sometimes people are branded a certain way, <coughs> excuse me, a certain way, and it, people just can't get over that. Well, there would be those for Paul too. He was a little too liberal in his view for some. Uh, as an apostle to the Gentiles, he would lower his status in some circles. There were those who denied that Paul was an apostle at all. There were those, uh, even those that acknowledged he was an apostle, many of those would say that he was much lower than the likes of Peter. Luke's desire, I believe, one of his desires with the book of Acts was to set the record straight. In 2 Corinthians 11.5, Paul came, uh, according to what the Bible says, not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. Paul was an apostle through and through. Let there be no doubt about that. But you'll see all through the book of Acts uh, how Luke draws a parallel between Peter and Paul. Everything Peter did, Paul did. Paul was an apostle of God, uh, called from heaven, ordained by Jesus himself. He was equal in all points with Peter. Every time the apostles are listed as a group in the New Testament, you know whose name comes first? Peter's name. Well, Luke wanted to make sure Paul is in the same standing as Peter. Now, you say, what are you talking about here? Let me give you a list, and you'll see a little bit of what I'm talking about. He records in detail Peter's first sermon. He records in detail Paul's first sermon. He names Peter's first Gentile convert, Cornelius. He names Paul's first Gentile convert, Sergius Paulus. He shows how both men went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He tells how both men healed a lame man. He tells how both men were visited by an angel. He talks about how both were imprisoned and miraculously released. He shows how Peter was led by a vision to open the door of the church to the Gentiles. He shows how Paul was led by a vision to open the door of the European continent to the church. He tells how both men once worshipped, how they were both worshipped by some Gentiles and how they reacted. He tells how both were beaten. He records some of Peter's miracles. He records some of Paul's miracles. He tells of the miraculous influence of Paul's, uh, of Peter's shadow. Remember that? And then he talks in this chapter about Paul's handkerchief. He records how Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. He records how Paul raised uh, Eutychus from the dead. He gives us a sample of both men's itineraries. He tells us how Peter had a confrontation with a magician, Simon the sorcerer. Then he tells us how Paul had a confrontation with a magician, uh, Elmas. The point is that nothing, in, in no way did Peter come behind Paul. Now, isn't that interesting? We could go on, by the way, there's more. But, but Luke is very careful to keep Paul in the same level as Peter, which brings us back to our story tonight in Acts 19. One time, Peter imparted the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. One time, when Peter preached, people spoke in tongues. And so we see here the proof that Paul could do the same. Luke was very careful. Whatever Peter did, he had Paul do the same thing. Here, Paul laid his hands upon a dozen men, and they received the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues. In all things, Paul was Peter's Equal. Now, I say again tonight, those who use this incident 
as a basis for giving the Holy Spirit to people today are using the Scripture wrongly. There is no other place in the Bible that allows for that. I cannot lay my hands on anyone and give them the Holy Spirit. I might give them COVID, but I can't give them the Holy Spirit. Amen? Uh, I can't give them anything in that. I'm just kidding. I don't have COVID. Don't anybody go and start something on Facebook, okay? But uh, those who use this as proof that if you have the Spirit, you'll speak in tongues, it's not Bible. The Bible tells us very clearly how I can see that Wes has the Spirit, how I can see that Alan has the Spirit. It's found in Ephesians chapter 5. There's a whole list of things. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. There's a whole list of things. These are fruits of the Spirit. There's not a list of the fruit of the Spirit there, tongues being a part of it. Okay, This was not for us. It was for a specific time, 1 Corinthians 13. So, those who use this passage as a proof that people who have the Spirit speak in tongues, they reveal a misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in our age and the significance of tongues in the early church. Alright, go to verse number 8. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Paul had already met the people in the Ephesian synagogue and sowed the seed. Aquila and Priscilla had been there cultivating the ground. Apollos had ministered effectively among the Jews, watering the seed. The time was ripe for the reaping. I love that, when the church works together to reach somebody for Christ. I gave a, in testimony time a while ago, I mentioned <coughs> we had a young man saved this week. Uh, uh, for two weeks, we had somebody that comes to our church invite him and bring him to church. Somebody invited him. When he came, uh, I talked to him in the back there for a while, found out he does not have a Bible. I gave him a Bible and wrote a note in there in the Bible so he could start reading the Bible. And then Tuesday night, that rascal Pastor Forsberg went and picked the fruit off the tree, you know, and, and was able to lead him to Christ. But uh, you see, we, everybody has a part in it. Amen? And it's a good thing that somebody invites, somebody waters, somebody helps, and then somebody uh, gets to pick the fruit off. But for three months, Paul here had an open door in this synagogue. Much longer, by the way, than usual. He used his customary approach here of disputing and persuading. In other words, other words for reasoning and persuading. His theme here was the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom Jesus talked to about Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 The Jews rejected both the king and the kingdom. And it is this kingdom that Paul preached in his persuasive way. We can be sure that he presented the kingdom as it was given in the Old Testament and the New Testament both. Verse 9 says, But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed. That word hardened is the same word that describes Pharaoh's heart in Romans 9.18, being hardened. It's the same word that describes Israel's heart when they were hardened in unbelief in the wilderness, Hebrews 3.8. It was a deliberate hardening in the face of irrefutable evidence. Can I tell you again? Evidence is not the opposite of unbelief. Faith is the opposite of unbelief. You can trot out all the evidence you want for an unbeliever, and they won't accept it. I, have gotten, I got into a conversation recently with a young man that says, if God is God, why doesn't he show himself? 
And that is an interesting concept, isn't it? I said, it just so happens he did. How would you like to show, at first I asked him, how would you like for him to prove he is who he is? Because anybody can say they're God. Well, he would have to, he would have to prove it. He would have to do some miracles. I said, it's interesting because he did actually show himself. He came, he lived here for 33 years. He did a lot of miracles. He raised people from the dead, walked on the water, fed thousands of people. He did everything to show he was God. And guess what we did with him? We killed him. Belief is not, or unbelief is not swayed by evidence. It takes, faith is the opposite of unbelief, not evidence. And so here, they were filled with unbelief. The hardcore of the Ephesian synagogue, the Jews refused here to believe. The Bible says they believed not. That's a choice. Reminds us of John 3.36. He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. They expressed their unbelief. Here, the Bible said they spake evil of that way before the multitude, <coughs> speaking evil or scoffing the way of salvation through Christ. And that is where Paul uh, departed them. Uh, then he goes on in verse 9, he departed from them, he separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. As soon as the Jewish unbelief reached the stage, basically, of cursing God, Paul separates himself, and he separates his converts too. He chose a new uh, place, meeting place for his lecture hall, a well-known teacher here, one Tyrannus. And this, in verse 10, continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. What Paul did here is the same thing he's been doing throughout the book of Acts. He would go to these cities and plant uh, uh, central churches, and then those churches would be responsible to get the uh, vicinity areas. We learn from Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that churches were planted in Colossae, Hierapolis, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Paul himself probably did not start these or even visit them, uh, but those years he spent in Ephesus, he infused all these converts with the same missionary zeal that he had, and they did a great work. What an example that is for us. Each and every one of us ought to have a common goal to evangelize the lost around us, and then it can go much further than just the efforts of one man. Amen? Which is exactly what we saw with a soul coming to Christ last week. It's a blessing see folks working together for it. So, uh, did that help? Clear some of that up? Okay. Does anybody want to stand up and argue? Okay, that's good. I'm glad. I uh, was hoping nobody would take me up on that. All right. And my wife's in the nursery, so I, I knew there'd be no danger of that happening there. So, I'm, I'm just kidding. But uh, we appreciate you. I love you. And I hope that you have a great week. Uh, I, I hope that as we look at these, some of these texts and, and uh, again, we don't always agree on every little tidbit, but I think we can agree on the big things as we go through the book of Acts. That'll be a blessing. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity we have of being here tonight, being reminded again of your sacrifice on the cross. We take communion, and I thank you for each and every one of these dear folks. I pray that we would have a productive week to impact others with the gospel as they did in the book of Acts so successfully. Lord, I pray you to help us as we continue your work. We'd honor and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.